0: Hello and welcome to Living While Feminist. Living While Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Rumbi Gordima-Gurjens. Rumbi is a Zimbabwean-born, South African-based feminist author and activist. Her writing has appeared in The Oprah Magazine, Vela Magazine, and on FeministSA.com and MyFirstTimeSA.com. She has worked with various South African civil society organizations, and her current day job is at Embrace, a movement dedicated to making mothers and motherhood matter in South Africa, in benefit of women who mother and the children they raise. Rumbi is a proud and exhausted mother of Samuel, who's seven going on, seven, seven going on 18, <laughs> and Muriro, who is three. So today, I'll be talking with Rumbi about making motherhood matter. Welcome, Rumbi.
1: Hi, thanks for having me
0: a pleasure. Let's start with you and your motherhood journey, but you describe yourself first as a feminist author and activist. What are the issues that you're most passionate about and you're advocating for?
1: Hmm, That's a very good question. Uh, One that I haven't thought about in a long time, actually. Um, (laughs) I think more than anything, um, I I just want a world where women can determine their own destinies um, and you know, live out um, lives that they envisage for themselves, where they are safe, and they are happy, and they are fulfilled, whatever that looks like. Um, And yeah, so basically, all of the work that I do is towards that bigger goal. Um, So women can live fulfilled, happy lives that they imagine for themselves, um, without having to explain or qualify for anyone.
0: This season on Living While Feminists, we're talking about parenting while feminists, which is obviously one way that if you supported, you can actualize yourself and live out, a, you know, a motherhood or a parenthood the way that you want to. You're the mother of two young children. How has feminism shaped your parenting, and how has parenting shaped your feminism?
1: I think that feminism has made it harder to lean into um, some easy kind of reassurances that traditional understandings of gender and sex and the relationship between sex and gender gives you, um, it's, it's it's made me have to be a lot more thoughtful about the way in which I talk to my children and parent them with regards to sex and gender. Um, my son in particular, because he's older, is um, he's going through quite a distinct phase of um, figuring out what it means to be um, a boy, and there's a lot of kind of there's changes in that he won't let me paint his nails, which I used to be able to do. Um, he won't wear certain colours, which he used to never really mind. Um, and I'm trying to kind of be respectful of you know the things that he wants, but also without reinforcing any kind of hard and fast ideas about what's for girls and what's for boys. So it's 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 it makes you kind of more thoughtful. Um, it's hard work because a lot of the times you're parenting without the rule books or the playbooks that other people are using. Um, and, and oftentimes I find myself leaning back on those traditional rule books, which is not fantastic, um, But because you're tired a lot as a parent. And sometimes it's just like, you know what, it's fine. If you, pink is for girls, whatever. But I'm, I'm trying really hard to be thoughtful, even for the small stuff, because I know that it plays into how... They're going to relate to themselves, their own bodies, and to people of other gender identification.
0: And where do you think that he's getting the ideas of, you know, colors and things like that from? Is it just from school or is it from other people, you know, that he interacts with on a daily basis?
1: Um, I wish I could say it was just from school and other people (laughs) and not in our own home. But I do think these things are insidious and they are kind of suffused through all of our interactions, even in our own home. Um, And so it's a mixture of both, I think. I, you know, I grew up in a different time, obviously. And even though I was never made to feel a particular way because I was a girl, you know, I'm a product of the time in which I grew up. And, you know, even things like explaining to him Um, non-binary and and people who are non-gender conforming, that's something that I've kind of had to learn. It wasn't something that I spoke about or was spoken with about when I was a child. Um, And so, you know, I'm pretty sure in my own DNA and my vocabulary, there's things that I kind of carry that I don't realize are, you know, very kind of traditional and limited in talking about gender and sex. Um, So it's a challenge, (laughs) but it's also, I think it's also important that one is honest with themselves. If you, you know, if you pretend that it's something that your child will only encounter in the outside world, it does kind of let you off the hook (laughs) about all of the ways in which the stuff is kind of suffused into our ways of being. Um, And one has to, I think I have to kind of remind myself that I'm on a learning journey with my children Um, and admitting that I'm wrong is, is not a... You know, it's not total failure, even though it feels like it.
0: Yeah, I think um, my little one is only eight months old, but I can just see all the potential ways to fail and learn and relearn. And, you know, that that can happen. I'm also, for now, raising a boy. So I, I think some of these things are really important for me to think about going forward as well. But your second child is a girl. How has parenting her been different from parenting your first? Basically, my question is, does yeah. it get any easier? <laughs> <laughs> so it
1: does. It, it gets easier. It gets different. <laughs> I think you probably have heard that. Um, like Each stage has its own challenges. Um, my daughter is, you know, initially I thought everyone says, and this is something that also I fell into the trap of, Assuming everyone says girls are calmer and their energy is different. Uh, in some ways that's been the truth, but I don't think it's because she's a girl. I think it's because it's who my daughter is. Um, but she is, you know, the, the trick that uh, the universe played on us is, so my son is was conceived biologically, so he is, you know, he's biologically mine. I carried him. Um, my daughter is adopted and so we really kind of didn't know you know in terms of temperament what would what she would be like um, in comparison to her brother they are strikingly similar in so many ways especially right now that they're on school holidays I can you know they're both completely bored out of their minds they are just kinetic children they are always on the move it doesn't stop (laughs) and I had thought because a lot of people say this girls are different you know girls are well be calmer, you no, know, she's exactly like her brother, if not wilder. Um, and she also is quite, and this might just be because she's the second child in our family, she is very interested in the same things that her brother is interested in. Um, so she has her own interests that he's never really cared about, but she tends to kind of take on his interests and is quite intense about them in the way that he is. And so yeah I mean I think parenting my daughter has also taught me to just you you've got to also sometimes just parent the child in front of you <laughs> never mind what um you know what the the rules say um she's also really my daughter is also really in lots of ways into some traditional feminine things. So she will let me paint her nails. In fact, she insists on it. (laughs) And she will also, she plays with dolls in a way that my son never really, he was never really interested in um, dolls, even though he likes stuffed animals. And she does have a slightly longer attention span than her brother, even now when she's three. So, I mean, basically, I guess what my daughter has taught me is it's different. And you just have to kind of parent the child in front of you. Um, and interestingly, I think also with adoption, um, the, the tricky thing with adoption is, you know, you, you've got to hold the space for your child because you, it, their story involves a lot of loss and a lot of trauma. And so it's about holding the space of, you don't want that to define their entire existence and their entry into our family. Um, it's a joyful thing that they're in the world. It's a joyful thing that they are in our family. Um, but I also don't want to diminish the grief and the loss that came before that. And that will kind of uh, continue throughout their lives. Uh, and I, I, in the beginning, I used to get myself completely mixed up in like trying to acknowledge the grief and acknowledge the joy and celebrate, but also be very serious. And um, the way that I've kind of gotten around that is, look, you, I can't parent from the manuals or the adoption narratives or the stories of adult adoptees. Those things are very useful and they inform um, my parenting journey with my daughter. But I've also just got a parent, the child who I'm, who's in front of me, um, whatever that looks like on any given day.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's true for, for children, regardless of whether they're adopted or biological, however they come into a family. Like, There's so much variation and I think it's so true what you're saying. Like, There's all of these rule books and there's people who will tell you what the rules are and the rules have changed so much from generation to generation that they can all feel Mm -hmm. very constricting and being present and trying to do your best with the person that you're meeting and getting to know, I suppose, is a healthier way to go about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you've also got to focus on parenting and particularly mothering in your day job. So Embrace is a social movement that values and celebrates motherhood and mothers and the critical role that they have to play socially, economically and politically in South Africa. How did Embrace a movement begin and what does it look like to work on this issue on a day to day basis?
1: So Embrace began as, uh, it's, a, it's an incubated project of the DG Murray Trust, um, a private foundation that funds public benefit organizations across South Africa. Um, and it began really as an attempt to build bridges between families, so as to kind of encourage and nurture the growth of children in Cape Town. So it was originally Cape Town Embrace, and it grew out of The growing kind of understanding and knowledge that we were, that was kind of permeating the early childhood space about the importance of the first one thousand days, that um, begin when um, that begin when children are um, in the womb. So it begins at you know conception. And embrace was about building bridges between families in that very vulnerable um, first one thousand days. And the way what it looked like was. Connecting communities across different class barriers and across different um, faith communities, that uh, shifted and changed as these things do, um, and became a focus on mothers. Because what emerged from the work with within families is that mothers, and particularly mothers in in low income spaces, feel very keenly that the focus on their children and the focus on their children's development and the access that their children have feels very sidelining and and continue some of those tropes of, you know, as long as the baby is healthy, no one really thinks about the mother and the mother is the one who is spending the majority of those 1,000 days carrying the weight of of this child and, and teaching them and nurturing them and nourishing them. Um, And so it turned into, from a focus on children, um, it turned into looking more closely at the ecosystems that we build around children and that we build around mothers specifically, that that mother-child diet is incredibly important um, and is often underlooked. Uh, We don't really have a vocabulary to talk about mothers as an interest group in this country or elsewhere. And I think that's changed obviously, in recent years. Um, and in my day job, I am the operations manager for Embrace, which which basically means I'm, um, you know, I do a lot of the logistics and admin um, to kind of keep the wheels turning. Um, but I'm part of a very small, dynamic team of, of women who are part of a larger community um, of women who care about mothers and the issues around motherhood and having a more nuanced understanding of what motherhood looks like. Um, And then also I think most importantly for me, um, acknowledging that motherhood is, it's it's our responsibility as a community to protect mothers and to protect the mother-child dyad. So when we think about the welfare of a child, um, often we think about the child in isolation, but um, Embrace is really wanting to kind of shine the spotlight on all the ways in which, you know, a child is a product of the way that their mother is situated in a community and in a society. And if it's a society that doesn't value mother's time, that doesn't value mother's stories, even when those stories conflict with what they think, what we think they should be, or um, what the science says. Uh, doesn't value children, ultimately. Um, It's a really hard line to walk. It's a really hard line to walk because we are often in spaces where the conversation is around the child in early childhood development spaces. Um, And then on the other side of the coin, we are in conversations where uh, we're talking about women and self-determination. And, you know, motherhood is a very complex issue. If you're a feminist, it has not always been the most kind of empowered space for women, and I don't, in a lot of ways, I don't think it is. I don't know if mothers often feel like they've chosen motherhood kind of independently. It's a difficult one, but um, but it's a line that I really relish walking um, with the team that I have, and um, yeah, I get to have these amazing empowering and insightful and enriching conversations with mothers from across the spectrum in South Africa, and I love it.
0: Well, any visitor to your website will see that Embrace also has a huge variety of focus areas, one of which is breastfeeding. I think it's really important that Embrace not only supports the evidence that breastfeeding can be an important way to nourish your baby or your child. But also that in order for this to happen, all mothers should have enabling environments that support their efforts to breastfeed for as long as they want to do it. And reality, mm-hmm. that's as you say, it's not often the case. Many mothers have to go back to work in an unsupportive environment or decide and decide to wean early. Or they struggle with the physical realities of breastfeeding or are not able to make it work. And there's other mothers who may choose not to breastfeed from the beginning. How does Embrace balance the need to get the facts and the science about the benefits of breastfeeding out there without shaming mothers who aren't breastfeeding for whatever reason? And why is it important to focus not only on the mother herself, but on the system that supports her breastfeeding?
1: Hmm. <clears throat> um, sure, that's a good one. I've, we've literally, I feel like I've just come out of world breastfeeding. I mean, it was a week, but it was also a month for us. August was, we spent kind of a month thinking and talking and listening to mothers and, and and really kind of trying to hear mothers and elevate their voices around breastfeeding. It's a contentious one because breastfeeding is quite a personal individual thing, right? You're talking about a woman's breasts and you're talking about a process that is rooted in biology and hormones. So it's, it's a very personal individual thing. But It also is something that's treated as a public health imperative. So the World Health Organization has guidelines about it. Pediatric associations have guidelines about it. Um, Your hospital, the way that the hospitals are configured, birthing centers have guidelines about it. So it's also this very personal and, and individual thing that is also incredibly public and very kind of, in some ways, regulated. But even so, like there's gaps in terms of what we give mothers in order to equip them, to prepare them for breastfeeding, and what we give them in order to kind of keep them breastfeeding. There's almost a, um, there's almost a denial sometimes in the way we talk about breastfeeding in the public sphere, because people don't want to scare mothers and they don't want to discourage mothers. And so we speak about it as breast is best. And then also breastfeeding is natural. Um, and it it's true, it's natural in that it occurs in nature and in the body, but it's not it's not something that just comes easily. There's a lot of work involved and there are a lot of resources involved in breastfeeding. A hungry mother can't breastfeed adequately. A mother who does not have access to lactation consultant might struggle. Um, A mother who's got to go back to work weeks after she's given birth and who is not able to access um, the room or the facilities she needs to express breast milk is not going to be able to successfully breastfeed. So even though we talk about it as this public imperative, we got to protect it, protect it, protect it, um, we don't really talk about what it actually means to protect it with respect to mothers and their lives. So what does it mean for example that in South Africa we give women i think it's mandated to at least 6 weeks but then up to 16 weeks of maternity leave which is fantastic but it's not necessarily paid. And so what does that mean you know to a mother who's got other children to support but who is feeling that she has to go back to work, you know, to continue to feed her other children, never mind breastfeed, this, this tiny little one who is probably attached to her all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And what does it look like um, if, for example, we are living in a country where, I mean, there is, we do not talk about maternal hunger enough. We spoke about it a lot during COVID. It is not something that arrived with COVID and it is not something that is left. Um, what does it mean? For a mother who can't feed herself to use her body to nourish a little being. So I think a lot of what we talk about with breastfeeding and, you know, embrace feels quite, we, we don't ever feel the need to justify a position, because for me it just makes so much sense. A supported mother, a mother who is told the truth, <laughs> tell the truth to women, we're not children, you know, we can take it. <laughs> a mother who's told the truth, who's supported, who's given space to to talk about the hard parts um, and who's supported through those hard parts is a mother who's going to feed successfully no matter what feeding decision she makes. And surely easing the path for mothers to breastfeed is what we should really be doing rather than focusing on kind of the public the public kind of messages that kind of let mothers and their stories fall through the cracks. So, so I've said a lot, but that's embraces approach is really like listen to mothers and believe them when they tell you these things. Um, Mm. you know, so like, what I hear a lot of what drives me crazy is a mom will say, I tried and I, my supply was just tanking and someone will be like, that's very rare. you have the milk And My first instinct is you you, you can't actually know that because you're not in her body <laughs> and you're not her her nurse or her lactation consultant. You're not the baby. you can't you can't know these things. What does it cost us to just take a beat and listen? Um, and in listening, the support and the answers will come. But often we're too scared, like, you no, know, you can't talk about not having supply because then other mothers will think, you know, it's it's natural, it's natural. Every woman can do it. And it's just, that drives me crazy um, because that might be true for some women. It's not true for everyone. And by pretending that it is, we're doing everyone a disservice, frankly.
0: Yeah, as a mother who struggled with her supply, I feel exactly what mm-hmm. you're saying, like maybe just take a beat. Um, there, You know, there's, there is there is. Way there are ways to support mothers to breastfeed if that's what they want to continue doing, which is what I wanted to do, Um including stuff like meditation, meditation, medication, lactation support, mm-hmm. making sure that she is able to eat and is hydrated. For example, there's loads of ways, but you first have to find out what her existing situation is before you can support her appropriately. I think that's mm-hmm. so true what you're saying, and um, mm-hmm. you've spoken there a little bit about maternal hunger, and I noticed that one of the things that Embrace recommends. Um, changing to support breastfeeding is the need for a maternity support grant in South Africa. What does this mean and what would it look like in Embrace's ideal world?
1: Mm. So there's a lot of kind of conversation about this because I think the President mentioned it recently. He took a question in Parliament and said something about it. I don't exactly know what he said but he mentioned it which is obviously very exciting for (laughs) for everyone in my (laughs) sector. But essentially, at the moment we have, so, so South Africa really has some of the more um, far reaching webs of social protection nets um, in our region. Um, they are not implemented perfectly and they are not comprehensive by any means, but they exist. Um, and one of the, the parts of that social safety net is the child support grant, right? So. Once a child is born um, and a mother has registered her child's birth with Home Affairs, you can then apply for a child support grant, and that is paid per child. Um, you know, but that only arrives once a child is here. And again, it comes with that caveat of you've got to have you've got to have registered the child. So um, there's a lot of steps you have to take before you can formally apply. What we're saying is actually the needs of the mother um, and the child, if we're being honest, if we're talking about the child within the first 1,000 days, begin long before the child is born and registered at Home Affairs. Um, Once you're pregnant, your diet will change, um, your healthcare needs will change, you Will have to go to a clinic visit at least eight times. We, the Department of Health mandates eight anti, up to eight antenatal visits, sometimes more if it's a high-risk pregnancy. Um, and often those visits, if you are lucky enough to be in um, a form of employment where your employer will pay you, even for the time that you take for those visits, then that's okay. But for women who are self-employed or women who are working in the informal sector, a day at the clinic or hours at the clinic Mean hours where you're not earning, um, or a day where you're not earning, but you're paying for the fuel or the taxi fare or the bus ticket or the train ticket to get there and back. So there's financial needs that come with pregnancy that benefit the mother and the child if we were if we're able to kind of kind of cover them in that space. Um, and the idea is that this is its a bounded period, so you are only pregnant for a certain period, it is a bounded period between when um, the fetus is viable and the birth that will cover the gaps in care and in support that the CSG does not get before the child is here and get you to the point where you can then access this further part of the social safety net, the child support grant. Um, so, there is a lot of kind of debate about what that looks like and you know, we do not have the details as embraced, but basically what we are lobbying for is official acknowledgement that, you know, pregnancy is work. Um, you know, growing a child and, and caring for them while they are in your body is is work for mothers. It is very physical work, it is taxing work and it is expensive work and we should acknowledge and support that um, to ensure a healthy start for mothers and children in the first 1,000 days. Um, and then into um, the period where they can access the Child Support Grant, we also know from our experience, Embrace used to um, we used to run a an annual celebration called Mother's Day Connect, where we would visit new mothers on Mother's Day, so on that Sunday, um, in hospitals and um, give them kind of a, a little goodie pack with donations for them, some for their babies, sometimes. The difference between feeling like you can do this, you can look after this child, is being able to prepare physically and logistically for their birth. If you are able to say, buy a few things for the baby, a few baby clothes, a few birth birth plots, make the necessary arrangements, that can make such a huge mind shift difference for a mum who might not be sure, if she's ready to to go through with pregnancy or if she's ready to to become a mother. And so, you know, that's also an unspoken, an unspoken kind of gap that's there um, in our society. Um, and we also think, I think, you know, it's difficult because people are weird when it comes to women's bodies and their sexualities. Um, And so there's a lot of kind of moralizing around, well, if you're going to get pregnant for the child support grant and blah, blah, blah. But I think acknowledging the gaps in supporting women in pregnancy also acknowledges that we live in a country where pregnancy is not always a choice. Um, A young teenage girl, for example, who can't access contraceptives or who is in a coercive relationship with someone who won't let her use contraceptives or someone who... Is in a in a marriage where they don't have agency to say when and how and under what circumstances they engage in sexual activity. It acknowledges that we are responsible for you as a society. So we will hold you through this pregnancy. It's not something that you have to kind of live with as a bed that you have made as an individual. You know, that comes, I think, from the very kind of weird sometimes conservative and moralizing ways in which we think about women's bodies and sex um so yeah that's that's kind of where we're coming from with that
0: Mm, I think it's incredibly important what you're saying and it is true that people often talk about the first thousand days and talk about children, but they don't think about the day those that's part of those days are internal. <laughs> they are in someone's mm-hmm. body. And so you need to make sure mm-hmm. that the person who is housing that child is supported, is nourished, is taken care of, you know, has access to mm-hmm. the health support as well as the emotional and psychosocial support they need and sometimes that just means giving someone money and um, I think there's mm-hmm. lots of evidence from the World Bank around the benefits of both unconditional and conditional cash transfers to people to show that they yeah. that it makes a huge social and um, you know human capital difference so the evidence is there I'm really glad that you guys are lobbying for this and hopefully it does become a thing in the near future, especially if it's getting mm-hmm. mentioned already by the president, that's great news. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, a last question about Embrace. I'm sure listeners would be interested to hear more about the Mamandla Fellowship. Can you tell us a little bit more about it, um, and how it's been rolling out? Hmm.
1: Um. So I love Mamandla. It's like the best part of my job. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> Mamandla grew out of when Embrace was kind of. Pivoting from a focus on children um, to a focus on children within an ecosystem, and mothers as a central part of that ecosystem, we were looking at the ways that we can get people involved in embrace. So we're not we're not a traditional NGO in that we we're not necessarily a project, um, and a lot of the work that we do is is advocacy and campaigning. Um, and, and working to kind of get motherhood on the map in lots of high-level um, conversations. And people want to get involved, people want to support mothers and they want to help. And the way that we think about ourselves as a movement is that there several, several kind of plugins where people can get involved. Um, for a lot of young moms of young children, um, getting involved might just mean kind of following on social media, sharing our content, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are able to go door to door-, door-, door with a petition or you're able to attend the public meetings or you're able to, you know, it, it looks different for different people. And so we wanted to create spaces for different kinds of engagement. And we envisaged kind of our kind of super engaged, super engaged people as people who are already doing work in this area in their own communities, but who are maybe operating in isolation. So we do, we have a lot of a lot of fellows who are either working as volunteer doulas, they're running antenatal classes, or um, they're kind of starting social enterprises um, in their own communities that focus on um, mothers of babies, or they're working with parents of premature infants. So they're doing the work of supporting mothers supporting parents in their own communities, but they maybe do not have access or a plug into a broader national network. And so that is how it emerged really, is how can we bring together these amazing people who are doing all of this incredible work and just bring them together and get them sharing their passions and their ideas and working together. Um, and it has been quite an amazing journey. We are now in our third iteration of the fellowship. So we have, I think about, in total, we've got 50 fellows over the three years. Um, And it's incredible to see how even though we can only physically get together a few times, um, and that was even fewer (laughs) during COVID, even though we can only get together a few times, you can already see the connections that are happening and um, what's coming out of those collaborations, like real, you know, practical things. We have one fellow who, um, works very hard to support the parents of premature infants, and she has linked up with some other fellows to access donations. And one of her other fellows, one of the other fellows, is furiously knitting um, tiny beanies for the premie infants um, that she's going to to be working with. Um, so it's it's things like that, like the practical where you can connect someone to someone who is connected, um, and also just the the support and the affirmation to say the work that you're doing is important and I see it and I value it and you're not alone in it.
0: So much of motherhood is work or so much of parenting is work that looks like you're doing nothing <laughs> a lot of the time <laughs> yeah. and it's so important to, to value the different ways that you can get out there and support a parenting journey and that you are actually you know, raising human life and that that is important mm-hmm. and work in and of itself. And um, uh, I'm not sure if, if I missed it. Did you mention how people can get involved with the fellowship? Uh,
1: no, I did not. <laughs> so you can apply. We usually open applications towards the end of um, the current fellowship year. So, and that's usually in January, February of the next year. So keep an eye on our website. If you go to embrace.org.za forward slash mamandla. Um, That is where we post the application forms when we open. Um, And so basically, it's a two-step application. You complete an application form. And based on the application form, you might get called to an interview um, and then a second-round interview. And and that's, that's really, that's our process.
0: Amazing. So people can check that out online and hopefully get in touch with you and that's embrace.org.saday slash mamandla. And yeah. I have three final questions to ask you, which are questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And the first is, do you have a book that has inspired your feminism?
1: Oh, wow. That is a tough question. <laughs> There's so many. Oh. Golly. Um, okay. I have, yeah, I have two. Um, I regret that they are both American, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so the first one is um, On Love by Bell Hooks. Um, I just, you know, she she died last year and I think like a week ago someone wrote something about about her on a day that would have been her birthday and she just wrote and thought so beautifully about activism, and, and as care work, and activism as love, um, and that being being engaged in difficult conversations, and being engaged in difficult work is an act of love, um, even though sometimes it feels like it's strife, you know, a, a lot of the conversations we have can be quite contentious, quite difficult, you know, if, for example, you're up against someone who's ranting about how women just get pregnant for the child support grant and you know, it, it can feel, it can feel difficult, it can feel hard, um, especially when, you know, the, the change is slow <laughs> um, and steady, if at all it comes. Um, so there's, that's, that's the first one. And then um, the second one is more recent, and it's by um, a woman called Mia Birdsong, it's her real name, and it's called um, How We Show Up. And she writes, very, and and speaks very beautifully about tapping into communities' existing resources. So, kind of this idea that the answer that we have, that we're looking for, like the golden nugget that we're looking for to solve these social problems that are so complicated and interconnected, always lies within communities. Like, it, it never lies in a boardroom. Uh, it never lies in a policy document. And so what happens in those rooms where decisions are made has got to speak very clearly to what's happening in communities. Um, and that's a very hard thing to do um, and a hard thing to operationalize. But So those are the two that, that really that are central, I think.
0: And do you have a quote that you live by or words of wisdom that you love?
1: I, You know, I... I'm going to read you, I'm just going to find it here. It's a quote that I go to often. It's about motherhood. Um, And it is, yeah, it's pretty much the best thing I've ever read about motherhood. Um, So uh, it's in a piece written by um, a woman named Courtney Martin. And she quotes this piece. So she quotes Miranda July talking about, motherhood. So she says, if you were wise enough to know that this life would consist mostly of letting go of things you wanted, then why not get good at the letting go, rather than trying to have? These exotic revelations bubbled up involuntarily, and I began to understand that the sleeplessness and vigilance and constant feedings were a form of brainwashing, a process by which my old self was being molded, slowly but with a steady force into a new shape, a mother. It hurt. I tried to be conscious while it happened, like watching my own surgery. I hoped to retain a tiny corner of the old me, just enough to warn other women with. But I knew this was unlikely when the process was complete. I wouldn't have anything left to complain with. It wouldn't hurt anymore. And I wouldn't remember. So I know it's long, but <laughs> but the, the, the spirit of it, that idea that like motherhood is, is a process of becoming... And it hurts, like all processes of becoming. And that's okay. Um, I'm a big proponent in just telling women the truth. <laughs> just let people tell the truth. Uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of truth hiding that we do about motherhood. And some people say it's because we've forgotten. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's because there are no spaces where we can talk about it. Um, so tell the truth. It's It's hard. And it involves... Breaking and it involves blessing <laughs> and it involves becoming, but anything worth becoming is
0: like that, I think. So, yeah. I also read a Margaret Atwood quote that was um, when you have a baby, you lose your brain and some of your hair, but they eventually both grow back, <laughs> which I suppose is God, similar. So like <laughs> Yeah. I mean, mine is growing back in a very 80s style fluff around my forehead at the moment, my hair at least. My brain is still completely <laughs> gone. <laughs> It yeah, and
1: true. that I don't, I don't know if that ever changes. I still, like, I I never used to be this person, but I walk into mm. rooms now
0: and I'm like, why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> the sleep deprivation is a real thing. Mm. I mean, you can't actually form memories when you sleep deprived, which I'm sure is a biological. <laughs> you know, for form early motherhood, is you have to forget mm. how traumatic it all is if you want to carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: but I, I, I also think we just. Like there's so much sanitizing around. And it's a a tricky thing because also in a lot of ways, like motherhood is joyful and children are amazing. But we do a lot of, like I I was at a baby shower some years ago and it was when my son was, I think he was like two or something. And two is challenging. (laughs) It's a challenging, challenging age. And I remember being like, oh, this is such bull. Like I wish I could just say to this woman, the swaddling blankets are not going to save you. <laughs> it's going to be really hard. And that's okay. I think the thing that trips a lot of mums up is no one tells you that it's going to be really hard. And if someone had just said to me, listen, listen, it's going to be hard. You're going to feel like you're bad at it a lot. <laughs> but that's normal. We all go through that. Um, you know, so I, I do try, you know, in, in relationships with my friends, uh, so people who I love and know well enough that I feel safe enough to be like, <laughs> congratulations, that's going to be so hard. <laughs> but also it's going to be so hard, but I've been through it. You can always, you are always welcome to message me and talk about the hard stuff because there's a lot of spaces where moms are made to feel ashamed for talking about the hard stuff and the stuff that isn't so nice and the stuff that you don't really want to be doing, but you have to um but I'm there I'm I'm that friend what's up me anytime I'm open to it I know you love your kids you don't have to qualify anything with me
0: <laughs> I know it's so true that it's going to be the worst and the best thing um at the same time sometimes <laughs> mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know saying to people you know, when you, I think you go through phases where, when people tell you that they're pregnant, you're like, "Congratulations, that's amazing, I'm so excited for you." And other times, you just want to be like, "I'm so sorry, <laughs> you don't even know." Like you have no idea. Like I think my first experience of being a mother. Like when people told me that they're pregnant, I just thought, "Oh my god, you don't even know what I'm going through right now. Like you can't, you're not going to make it." <laughs> but you do somehow make it. And I think, you know, yeah. we're we joking now, but what's important to say is that, you know, as a mother, as a parent, your mental health is so important. And if you're mm-hmm. struggling and you're not coping, seek the help that is out there. There mm-hmm. is help. And so many people, myself included, have found that help through medication. Many other people mm-hmm. have found that help through community and support and getting the support that they need. Um, and if mm-hmm. you're feeling overwhelmed, You're not doing anything wrong. It is overwhelming. It is objectively Mm -hmm. overwhelming, Mm -hmm. and to deal with this person that you've created or that has come into your family, it is overwhelming. And so, yeah, you're definitely Mm -hmm. not alone and not doing it wrong if you feel terrible Mm -hmm. (laughs) sometimes or most of the time. Yeah, yeah, sleep deprivation, especially there's a book. (laughs)
1: Oh, it's awful. There's a book by a woman called, I think it's Alyssa Albert. It's called Afterbirth. It's a it's fiction. And there's a quote in it that is like one of my favorite quotes of all time when she's like, when I see pregnant women on the street now, I want to shake them and be like, are you ready? Like, not like nursery ready, like but like on a metaphysical level, are you ready? <laughs> and she's like, that would probably terrify people if you did that. But I can <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah.
0: We we walked past some people um on one of the walking trails here in Cape Town the other day who were pregnant, and they were looking at our baby like, oh, it's so cute. And you could just see in their hearts, they were like, that's going to be us. <laughs> and my husband <laughs> <was> good luck. <laughs> and they both burst out of <laughs> But we genuinely meant it, like, good luck. You don't even know what's coming to you. And I think that's the beauty the beauty of parenting is that you have some sense mm. of what's coming next, but you have absolutely no idea at the same time. Yeah. Um and if you yeah. knew, you might not do it. It's like a, a parenting is a thing you can only know what you need to know when you need to know it. Otherwise, it's just so mm. overwhelming and completely Absolutely. like confounding. Yeah. Yeah. And then my last question to you, Rumbi, is: Do you have any advice for other feminists or other parents on their journeys through life? Hmm.
1: I think. I think the most important thing that's been amazing for me is I you know i i am a very introverted person i'm not very good at making friends i'm awful at it um but nothing has opened me up and and bonded me specifically to other women like motherhood across so many different kind of s- spaces and areas and i think for a long time um in my early feminism i was wary of motherhood um and thought of it as kind of a trap into which women can fall, but it's it's a lot more nuanced and complicated than that, and it can open you up and you can you'll find your people if you find your people, hold on to them tight <laughs> um because it it does it is kind of a super glue when it comes to bonding you specifically to other women I've found um across the board. Um, I have communities of uh, adoptive moms, communities of moms who conceived by IVF, which is how my son was conceived, communities of moms who are raising black children, communities of moms who are black themselves. Like, it's just, like, such a rich tapestry of connection and friendship, um, across these, all of these things. yeah. So, I mean, if you're a feminist and you're struggling with the idea of motherhood, I get it. I think it, I still struggle with it. It's 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 difficult um, because it, it is, a, like I say, with Embrace, we learn that it's such an unsupported role in society. Um, and it's one that carries all of the baggages of patriarchal conservative society, but it can open you up and bond you to communities of like-minded people in ways that Very few other things can. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, and sometimes you're struggling because it's hard and sometimes you're struggling because the system is a hot mess (laughs) and isn't there to support you. Yeah. And finding that community can help you navigate which of those two things is going on at the time. And Mm. I think that's
1: so add. I would also add to my advice is whenever you are, as a mother, if you are listening to something and the core message is, women have a problem and the problem is women just throw it out the window it's not true mm-hmm. it's a lie
0: <laughs> that's a, a brilliant piece of ps advice I'm, and 100% <laughs> endorsed by me and this, this podcast as well <laughs> yeah thank you so much Rumbi for the work that you're doing and supporting moms um, out there in the world and good luck in your own parenting journey and thank you very much for coming on the podcast
1: thanks Jen this is awesome and good luck to you too
0: thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of living while feminist with me jen thorpe please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences take care of yourselves